Fresh Art International presents conversations about creativity in the 21st century. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. At the intersection of digital media, sound art, and social practice, our podcast and radio show explore the world's diverse cultural landscape. What happens outside the art scene inspires many of today's curators, filmmakers, and artists. They mine the conceptual depth of personal and communal rituals and routines. Community gardens, shared ride systems, public processionals, weather vanes, home improvement projects, live streaming radio, and selfies on the internet are just a few of the subjects and sites of their research, commentary, and engagement. Projects that elevate our view of the everyday reveal life as an art form, translating the mundane into the extraordinary. In Port-au-Prince, Haiti, embellished buses, camionette in French, offer vivid everyday encounters with art. To locals, these colorful vehicles are known as tap-tap. They roam the streets of the city to offer a vital ride-sharing service. Curator and filmmaker Giscard Bouchot discovered a hidden creative community while making a 2017 documentary about these buses. I was asked by Canal Plus and uh, French production to get involved as a filmmaker about Tap Tap in Haiti, about the public transportation in Haiti. So I made a 52 minutes documentary about that last year, Tap Tap Chérie. The translation would be Tap Tap Darling. Yeah, Tap Tap Darling. <laughs> and it was interesting because Tap Tap is considered as a moving artwork in the city and a lot of cultural professionals are involved like designers, like painters and it was interesting for me to meet some of the people because in the contemporary art scene I would never meet these people. Let's describe one of the top top vehicles. The tap tap is the popular bus they call it tap tap because it's quick quickly tap tap is a quick quick transportation and there's bus around downtown or Port-au-Prince. They are made in garage in Port-au-Prince. We decided to go to the garage and to see how these bus are made. What we see in the movie that I made is all that kind of cultural professional are involved into a bus, you know. But not only cultural professional, there's electrician, there are designers, there are sculptors. To make it come to life. Absolutely, absolutely. And it's interesting, that kind of 
collaboration. <laughs> so these buses, the cladding, I guess would be a good word to describe it. They, the cladding has designs, it's very colorful, there are images, there's text. Some of them have and, names. And, and I forget to talk about the popular slogan. Most of them are very religious because we have a very religious population. But some of them are very ironic, and I love the ironic ones. Someone get the money to the lottery, then thanks God for the money. If his dream was about a woman, and he can put the name of the woman on the bus, so it's very funny. begun to test his theory that these art buses can help him introduce his country's cultural character to residents and visitors from outside the Caribbean. I decided to set up the Tap Tap Tour, and the Tap Tap Tour is a way to get people involved in the Tap Tap to discover a lot of artist studio in that city. What we're talking about now is the Tap Tap Tour that he has launched as an idea to invite people, even people living here in Port-au-Prince, who might not discover much of the culture outside what's required of their work. They go home, they don't go out into the city because it's a very lively city. It could be intimidating for some people to try to enter that world, and so they don't. Yeah, absolutely, because I realized that a lot of people live in years for years and they never gone to a voodoo ceremony, they never gone to some artist studio to see what kind of work they are doing and the way they are working. And it's important to understand that city or that country to see this kind of reality. And I was shocked, you know, when I met someone and they said, oh, I'm here for five years and I've never been at the photo ceremony. So Tap Tap 2 is an answer, you know, to let people to discover the creative city. Because we used to see the Port-au-Prince like chaos city. We decided to see the creative city or to show the creative city, to show the artist studio, to show what we are doing. Merci bon Dieu, garde tout ça la nature pour Dieu pour nous. Merci bon Dieu, garde comment la misère finit pour nous. Giscard Bouchot gives me a taste of his tap tap tour idea by taking me on a spin through Port-au-Prince and Pétionville. Downtown, we stop to meet local artists known collectively as Sculptors of the Grand Rue. These culture makers salvage what many would toss in a trash bin. Old tires, rusted gas cans, bicycle and car parts, bent nails, bits of charred wood, cast-off clothing, and even some of the human remains 
found in sections of the city that a massive 2010 earthquake reduced to rubble. Artist André Eugène invites me to explore his open air studio and the outdoor museum just beyond. My André Eugène, I'm from Haiti. I'm living in Portofest. I'm in my studio at the moment. And the studio's name is? Is a artist resistance. Artist resistance to the studio. There are many artists. I'm work together with them. So this looks like an amazing setting. It's an outdoor museum. That's my museum. His name is Pluribus Unum Museum. The E Pluribus Unum Museum. And we're walking past a game of dominoes, a very exciting game of dominoes. This is a yard of sculptures and wall pieces and pieces in uh, progress and they're made out of many different things that are found. This one is from here in Bottle Press, downtown. The reason I do something with them, you know, when politicians in Haiti protest in the street, then they put the fire and the tires, it's not good for your health. But I'm teaching the kids, kids do something with them. When it's sell them, pay the school, pay the food, pay everything. But pay the uniform also, that's a, is a good thing. So these are chil children who make the, these? Yes, the children, me and children is doing something like that. I recycle everything. For example, that's a real school, that one, you see? Yes. It's a real one. After the health work, many people die. And then when you clean the house, you can find many bonds like that, and then I'm just taking, I'm recycling, I'm just making some art with them. I'm working about the politics and social, economic, and religion, specifically Vodou. He's an old woman, he don't have a chief. Right, no teeth. <laughs> no teeth. And missing part of her glasses. Of course. <laughs> you see the, the shoes. Oh, yeah, there's a shoe for her hat. Yeah. There's keys, nails, everything. parts of everything. cars, parts now of bicycles. Is it real rat? A rat skeleton, the, the soles of shoes, a gas mask. There's even an article about his work in a newspaper that he's collaged into a yes. wall piece. Sculpting life and death. You play a part each time in the Ghetto Biennale. Mm -hmm. You're the co-founder. Yes, a co-founder, but that's also me and Leah Gordon. I work together with her. The reason I make a project like that, long time ago, I remember having a show in Miami, but I have many artists to go to the Miami show. And when I was to the U.S. Embassy, refused them for a visa, and after that, I'm trying to organize some event every two years, like the Ghetto Biennale, to make something. Leah Gordon is a co-founder with me, also she's a writer. She's working very hard for Ghetto Biennale. I would like many people who's coming in and Ghetto Biennale. I'm after it's a good event every two years I'm doing. That's the fifth edition, five edition is do it, the last one. I'm taking a good thing for all Asian art. In Haiti, sculptures made of rubbish have inspired a public art biennial that's earning art world attention. Now we travel across the globe to Münster, Germany, 
light years from the Caribbean in so many ways, and the destination for Sculpture Project, a free citywide public art exhibition that unfolds over 100 days and takes place only once a decade. In 2007, British artist Jeremy Deller launched a public art experiment with local community gardeners. That's when he asked 30 garden clubs to begin keeping journals. For 10 years, they recorded the everyday social experience of cultivating carefully divided shares of land. The outcome? Talk to the earth and it will tell you. A study in cultural anthropology. We meet outside one of the small red-roofed garden sheds during opening days of Sculpture Project in 2017. Welcome. Thank you. I came to Munster in 2006 to be in Sculpture Project 2007. And I thought what I wanted to do was, I love these gardens. They're for people who don't have gardens, who live in apartments. And it's a cross between a sort of social space, pleasure space, but also you, you have to grow fruit and vegetables. There's very strict rules about how you use your plot. You have a little house here. I was very charmed by them. I thought they were very beautiful places, kind of like a piece of paradise in an urban environment. And they're very popular throughout Germany. And they're called garden societies. And there's about 50 of these societies dotted around Munster. And I thought I'd like to work with them. So I came up with an idea to mark this 10 year period to do a 10 year diaries. Each society would be given a big book, it's like a big family Bible almost, and they would keep a diary for 10 years about their garden, about the social life of the garden, but also the natural life, the ecological life, and how it all mixes up really. And so what you have here, in 2017 is the culmination of the project. You had the books that were kept. Not every society could keep, could stand keeping a book for 10 years. So we have like 26 books kept by people, individuals or groups of people, about their gardens. So you have photographs, drawings, pressed flowers, all sorts of things. And the books are in the little room, in the hut. And you can just look at them, take off the shelf, sit down, go through them. They're all in German. So you might not mean that much to you, but I mean visually they're very interesting. And there's some lovely moments. There's a lot of pictures of sort of uh, weddings, wedding anniversaries, christenings and so on. So that's also something that's nice to look at. And parties. Big party scene. There's a big social scene around these gardens. Yeah. Did but you follow it? Did you talk to them every came, year? Came every year. Yeah. And it's like people showing me their homework. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> very attentive and of course I was very happy with what they were doing so that's basically what I did this is the end and now all the books are here and we'll probably put the books that the city archive or city library will we'll give them the books and they'll keep them in the specially made bookcase. In Germany artist Jeremy Deller reveals how community gardens can be unexpected repositories of cultural history. Back in the southern hemisphere Cesar Cornejo creates a project centered on home improvement. He works with locals to quietly and surprisingly shape temporal art spaces while cultivating a new understanding of art in communities unused to such everyday encounters. When we meet, the Peruvian artist talks about how his project for the 12th Havana Biennial expands on a concept he first realized in his home country. In Cuba, the site is a local family's home, 
on the hillside of Casablanca, a neighborhood near the entrance to Havana Harbor. His unique sculptural intervention evokes both the family's history and one of architect Frank Gehry's iconic museum designs. I've been invited to represent Peru at the 12th Havana Biennial, and I was invited to present a version of a project that I am developing in Peru, in Puno, Peru, which is called Puno Moca, which stands for Puno Museum of Contemporary Art. And it's a project that basically proposes to create an alternative museum model and try to find a model for museum that actually is based on Latin American reality, let's say, or third world country's reality. What we have done is uh, go to homes in Puno of low-income areas and offer people, neighbors from those homes, to repair some spaces in their homes for free with the condition that they allow us to exhibit art in those spaces that we have repaired. And after the exhibition ends, the, the works are withdrawn and the spaces remain for the owner to enjoy them as part of their home, and so they benefit from that. And I, as an artist, benefit from the opportunities that develop from there and the dynamics I can develop from the project. A few months after we meet, I call Cornejo to talk about why he chose what he calls a poor and ugly city to launch this experiment. Far from the metropolis of Lima where he grew up, Puno is the jumping-off point for a global tourist destination. Lake Titicaca, 12,000 feet above sea level. It was really the less likely places to create a museum. When Cornejo went to Puno for the first time, he found that construction had never been completed on 70% of the houses. I thought about the houses because as the first time I went to Puno, that really marked my memory was that how there were so many houses that were unfinished. So the project basically proposes to use that instead of bringing Western or first world country malls of museums, you know, that require lots of investment and, and these, you know, magnificent buildings. I thought, these are our buildings, this is our architecture. And I thought we can create a model by which they benefit and also we benefit. Achieving such a project involves many dimensions of engagement. There are aspects that have to do with finances, like business, aspects that have to do with education, aspects that have to do with environmental research and development of environmentally friendly technology. I started working a small scale because I didn't have money yet to do any significant work, but it still was meaningful. This concept is portable. The artist could create a mini museum in any number of small neighborhoods around the world, but building the necessary partnerships is essential and connecting on a personal level is not always easy. More important even than the place to me is the people, right? Finding the neighbors that actually can be good partners for the project, because that is the key to succeed. Because there has to be this trust between them and me, a good relationship to be able to have a happy ending and, and good experience for everyone. The project turned out to be a perfect fit for the theme of the 12th Havana Biennial, between the idea and experience. For the Havana Biennial, we have been introduced to the family Alberto Chinique. This house belongs to that family. It's an old family here in Casablanca. And Mrs. Maritza Otero also lives there with her daughter and her son, and they have been extremely helpful also all along the process. In this house, we have repaired the entrance. There was some structural damage from already the weather conditions, and cracks have been repaired, the structure has been repaired. 
and then inside uh, the lobby and the one bedroom also had walls have been painted and glass have been put in the window. We have an exhibition of two Colombian artists at the moment who are also guests of the Biennial. The Biennial's organizational structure and financial support allowed Cornejo to expand on the Puno Moco model to move his idea to the next level with an exterior spatial intervention that involved the family and their community in a new way. Havana has been a step forward in actually me being involved in creating a sculpture statement in the facade to show that this is a museum. And that's an idea that I've been thinking about for a while, but then until all the circumstances come together, it's really hard to do it. Cornejo's team transformed the entrance of the hillside home into a temporary contemporary landmark, visible from the ferry landing below. The sculpture tells the family's maritime history. A great-grandfather had operated a ferryboat service for Casablanca before the Cuban Revolution. With elements that the artist had built in his Florida studio and shipped to Havana, they erected a shimmering monument, four curving crescent shapes made of laminated plywood and surfaced in aluminum. Suspended at different heights and angles from a central column, the faceted reflective form evokes architect Frank Gehry's design for the Guggenheim Museum in Bilbao, Spain. Where do you go next with this idea? I feel making something as significant like we did in Cuba, in Puno, would be very, very important. They would complete the idea of Puno Moca not being only a project that deals with architecture and art, but also that's integral to the fabric of society. That is the next level, I would say. It's less material and more, more spiritual. <laughs> In 2018, a public art and digital engagement project that goes by the name of Wither Veins came to Miami with a definite sense of humor, but a far less than optimistic point of view. Detroit-based experimental design duo Root of Two, Cezanne Charles and John Marshall, translate the traditional weather vane into a 21st century radio transmitter their four-foot-tall, internet-connected, headless chickens change color and direction to convey the climate of fear propagated by the media. At the invitation of Locust Projects Miami, they mounted their headless chickens on the roofs of three buildings across downtown Miami, the Design District, and Biscayne Boulevard. The sculptures can scan the internet for alarmist keywords covering topics from violence to economic crisis to natural disaster. You can follow their neurotic early worrying system, or N-E-W-S, on the Withervane's Twitter account. Really the project, what it does is it looks at the Withervane as a, what was previously a, an agricultural informatic device. And so what we wanted to do was look at how we would update that for the 21st century. What we've done is we've created a headless chicken weather vane, which is driven by the climate of fear on the internet. Journalists from all around the world, when they upload news stories, the system essentially locates where that is coming from, reads the message, and then assigns values based on keywords that first come from what Homeland Security does, but then we've adapted that and put things from local people into that database as well. And so it generate a score of value for the story. That will drive the chicken to spin around and to change colour based on the amount of fear and threat that's in that news item. 
I've seen it on the roof of Locust Projects. There are two other sites in Miami where the wither vane is installed. So one of the things that's important about the project is that it always explores some sort of relationship to the way that news and media operates and particularly that it seems as if it's something that's really ephemeral and yet it can be really tied to a sense of place and sense of geography, especially if you think about the way that we're losing out on local news media in so many places across the U.S. We really were thinking about not how each wither vein adopts the attitudes or positions of a neighborhood, but how each wither vein represents an issue area because we were very interested in the way that special interest activism or lobbying for that matter has really been able to shape both the news media itself but then also our politics and so the wither vein that is on top of locust projects pays close attention to news stories that are tracking around the socio-political imaginary For the other two, we chose the themes of ecology. In the wither vein that is downtown, we are really looking at environmental and ecological issues, and it's paying close attention to media that is reflecting that. And with the one that is actually in the Mimo district, we're paying more attention to things that relate to the economy. What are the alarmist keywords that would activate motion in the wither veins? The primary source that's coming in is Routers World News. So basically we're paying attention to that. And what we're doing is we're actually looking at a database. We have 911. The original database came from the Electronic Frontier Foundation when they basically got from Homeland Security the words that are used on social media. So what Homeland Security looks at social media for. And those could be words like Afghanistan is in there, Mexico is on there, like things like bomb, hurricane, you know, all these kind of things on there. If you use those words on social media, then a bot somewhere, an algorithm will cross index and check your posts to see if you're up to anything. And in Miami and Florida, we do workshops with local people where we do a bit of training and building small electronic systems. But through that, we actually get to talk to them about what they're afraid of. So we use their words and we put those into the database. So one of the things that is distinct about Miami that was a surprise to us was the fact that climate gentrification is such a big issue. Climate gentrification? Yeah. Yeah. That's a new word for me. Tell me what that means. In doing some of the workshops and the artist talks that we did on the ground, as well as even looking at stories coming out of the local news media from Miami, what was being highlighted as climate gentrification was a set of actions and activities that were beginning to displace communities. So whether it's particular neighborhoods who were able to get their streets raised versus other neighborhoods who were poorer or had less influence or access to power were not able to get their streets raised. That's like one issue area underneath this broader brush topic of climate gentrification. But then also the way that people were beginning to leave what used to be thought of as prime real estate areas on the coast and on the beach and are moving further and further inland. And again, also displacing communities that have long held some of those other places in Miami homes. So 
there's a suite of actions and activities that people are beginning to think about, but it's the fact that the gentrification that is happening is being motivated, particularly as a result of the negative impacts of sea level rise or climate change. What I like about this is the weather vane reference, the fact that it responds to social climate, environmental climate, political climates. And right now, it's such a volatile universe we live in that it's great to have a way of gauging how we're dealing with it every day because a lot of us try not to look at as much news as we used to because it is alarmist. (laughs) And then others would find it comforting to know that there are these local harbingers of, what would it be, harbingers, symbols, signs, active responders, first responders. I I mean, I'm perfectly happy that you use the word harbinger because I think of them as, it's like when you get the winking light on your dashboard, you know, like something's wrong with your engine and you don't know what it is. You know something's not right, but and it sort of uh, invites you to ask the question or maybe go see someone about it or something's not quite right. I don't know what it is, but then to seek more information and it's, you know, take a moment and really think about what you're being told and why you're being told that. While Cezanne Charles and John Marshall speculate on our shared role in today's global climate of fear, Guadeloupe-born curator Claire Tancon suggests there's much to be learned from one dimension of contemporary performance art. She invites us to immerse ourselves in public processionals with roots in the Caribbean. Her traveling exhibition project, En Masse, Carnival and Performance Art of the Caribbean, features nine commissioned performances realized across eight cities in six different countries. Exploring cultural events that take place in the street, En Masse connects Carnival, Masquerade, and Performance, the global diaspora, and transnationalism. Tancom poured that energy into Tide by Side, a jubilant processional that took place in late 2016 to celebrate the opening of a new arts district on Miami Beach. In Miami, these traditions have been maintained by some of the Caribbean and Latin American communities. We can think of the Board Carnival, for instance. We can think of the Trinidadian and Caribbean populations. We can think of Junkanoo. And so specifically within the context of Miami Beach, I wanted to bring to the fore these carnival energies and the way in which they impact community making on the one hand, but also claiming space on the other hand, both features of everyday city life that have come to become even more important in the contemporary moment we live. So for me, Tide by Side was really about looking and maintaining this ongoing work and research on carnival procession and performance, but also opening it up beyond its Caribbean roots. 
we can form shared affinities among people and you know form constituencies that may not be otherwise possible if it wasn't for this human rapport that is created through various means of communications, including movement-based practices. Tied by side is obviously a pun, the idea of building community in Miami Beach, in Miami more broadly, tied after tied, side by side. So we've side by side the notion of community making, we've tied after tied a relationship to the ecology, an ecological economy of art making also. So tied by side, the opening processional performance of the Fine Art District, a really unprecedented mini urban experiment. Let's describe how the procession will unfold. Despite the organizing principle that I have implemented, it really is not a parade, certainly not of the triumphant kind. It will not solely unfold on Collins Avenue. It will really invade infest, inflict motion within the entirety of the finite district. Those who come to experience this will not just be standing at the side of the street watching things go by. They will have opportunities to join in and explore the district too. Absolutely. And this is where one begins to understand how malleable this particular content provider that the processional performance can be. It's really a way to thread these various performances in time and space, but also to allow energy to rebound off of each other. So it is by no means a traditional carnival, neither it is fully a demonstration, although there will be such elements within it. It really is an original work of its own that is held very tightly, but also in a very fragile fashion, based on the very energies that are produced in the very process of making that we're in and the magic, really, of live performance, particularly of the massive dimension that this particular genre of performance takes. You know, it is not something that is safely rehearsed, you know, in a museum. It is not something that is bound by walls in any way. It is really something that happens live with hundreds of participants, uh, thousands of audience members. So it's a very significant difference in terms of the way in which we have come to think of performance. You know, this temporary community that we have been forming for two years that we've been working on the project, that we are further cementing within, you know, the weeks leading up to the what is in fact only but the culmination of a long process that we also do hope will continue after the performance is over. I was among thousands to fall under the spell of Tide by Side, beginning and ending in the street. While I was there, I was super lucky to meet Yosvani Terry. He's an internationally acclaimed Cuban musician, composer, saxophonist, percussionist, band leader, and educator who's now teaching on the faculty at Harvard, head of the jazz department. And he is the composer of The Sound of the Conga Irreversible that was dreamed up by Los Carpinteros. This was a performance project where dancers dressed in black danced the conga backwards, heading north on Collins Avenue. My instrument is saxophone. I'm a saxophone player and composer. I'm coming from a family of musicians. My father is one of the Cuban legends within the Cuban popular music. 
I moved to New York in 1999, and it was not until three years ago that I went to Havana, and they, they approached me because they have this idea of making this very unique piece, and they explained me the whole concept of it, in which they wanted the dancers dancing backwards, and they wanted to have a music composed to it that it would give an effect that would accompany the choreography. So, 16 dance couple dancing backward, being carnival music, something that is very popular and massive, the challenge was like the music needed to groove, needed to have a groove for them to dance. I just couldn't arrive with something like experimental, John Cage type of that. It wouldn't really serve the purpose of the music. So what was the solution? Go home and study the music that preceded all of the carnivals in Cuba, and then figured out ways with the, you know all the musical tools that the composer have at his disposal to create the sound for this piece. It's beautiful. Thank you so much. I hope that there will be a sustained engagement with this particular ways of coming together in public space and affecting the urban and social landscape, intervening within architectural space. And I hope that our minds and heart and bodies will be transformed because ultimately these processes are transformative and performance is meant to be transformative. And I think it is even more so and even more true when it's on the mass scale with such great popular reach. My first experience with radio as an exhibition platform was during the 2017 edition of Documenta, when the International Art Exhibition that takes place every five years in Kassel, Germany, expanded to include exhibitions and public programs in Athens, Greece. I reached out to Marcus Gamel with Deutschland Radio Kultur to hear the story behind an exciting daily radio program coordinated with a network of internet stations in nine countries. Together, they presented a worldwide audio art exhibition. Documenta 14 Radio Project. Every time I hear the sound. It's made possible by really a kind of relay race of eight international partner radio stations, the first being in Greece, and then passing through different countries, Colombia, the US, Indonesia, Germany, Lebanon, Cameroon, and Brazil. All these stations agreed to liberate some four hours of their daily program for a period of three weeks each 
incorporating material provided by Documenta. And this consists of 30 audio pieces that have been co-commissioned by Documenta 14 and Deutschland Radio Kultur. So we ask 30 international artists from very different backgrounds to deal with the medium of radio and to create an audio piece particularly for this medium. So this will be running through the different stations uh, alongside with material that is being recorded in the Documenta public programs. So discussions, concerts, performances. And then the partner stations are also incited to go look into their archives and other audio archives in their respective countries and find material that resonates with what Documenta is proposing and tells their own story on similar topics. Tell me the provenance of the title, Every Time I Ear Does Sound, what it means for those participating. The title comes from a song of dub poet Mutabaruka, so it's deliberately spelled in pidgin. Obviously, by leaving out the H of here, it becomes ear, so there's a wordplay in it. But it also refers to the African diaspora, the Black Atlantic, as a kind of model for many migration movements around the world in the past centuries, but also nowadays. Sound is a very good medium to convey this kind of migration because it travels along with those who migrate. They have their languages, their songs, their bodily sounds that come along with them that then infiltrate other cultures, that communicate with other cultures, that sometimes create misunderstandings that can be productive or dangerous, but always have a certain effect. I'd love to talk about a few of the commissions. One in particular I know will resonate with many listeners in the United States is by Caroline Bergval, Oh My, Mm -hmm. Oh My, Mm -hmm. uh, titled Pink Trombone, 21 January 2017. Many people were involved around the world with a women's march after the inauguration of the latest U.S. president. On the morning of the 21st of January 2017, I get up, get dressed, shake off the shadows and get out. Shake off the shadows, shake off the shadows, shake off the shadows and get out. Come out, come in. This is the journey of the deep crowd. This is the long bell resonance from Washington to London. Detroit, Paris, Leeds, Athens, Oslo, Rio de Janeiro, Tokyo, Macau, Vancouver, Johannesburg, Berlin, Kassel, Dublin, Jakarta, Beirut, New Delhi. Political activism through sound is is a topic that um, pops up in uh, a lot of these commissions we made. Caroline Bergwald really makes a very strong point on resistance, voicing the critique to the political situation in the U.S. right now from around the world. 
we have hardly begun to relate and relay in long lines of being and the energies of the heart. Another one that I found very beautiful to listen to and would love to know more about is titled The Density of the Transparent Wind by Michele Ciacoferi about the Mediterranean Sea. The Mediterranean Sea is really, especially for the European perspective now, a crucial point, a topos of migration and the fear it brings about, the sorrow it brings about, the deaths, but also the opportunities. Kele is evoking all this through making this sound composition, digging into the waves and their noise, their white noise, and sparking these images of people crossing the sea and the stories they carry with them. The Mediterranean is another recurring motif in these commission pieces. What about the piece that evokes Myanmar by Alvin yes. Curran? Alvin Curran is one of the great masters of radio composition. He used to be part of the electronic group Musica Electronica Viva, so his practice reaches back into the 1960s when they were doing sound experiments between electronic music, uh, improvisation and composition. And uh, since then he has developed a long practice of working with concrete sound, with field recordings from different places. Um, in live performances, he plays these from a sampler and makes extremely strong and compelling live concerts with that. But he also makes these radio compositions where he lets the sounds breathe and uh, tell a story of their own. Myanmar is a country... We hear quite a lot about in the news, but we have a really hard time getting valid information about really understanding the political implications, the society. It's a quite a closed off country. And Alvin has been traveling there for several times over the past years and just collected field recordings from temples, but also from the streets, from encounters with people there. And he has a very careful way of letting these sounds speak for themselves. But I 
This radio program is an archive in itself of contemporary art history of sound and culture and relationships. And I'm wondering where will be the permanent archive of this experience? Part of the particularity of radio is that it goes by. It just happens. This is also part of the concept. You're really incited to listen to the radio at the moment when it happens. We do store the material and we do think about an eventual publication. There's no clear form for this uh, yet. Documenta 14 on Cannibal Radio. Documenta 14's online radio program is one example of how the internet serves as a vast resource for distributing artwork. Some artists are investigating specific streams within the flood of online visual content. American artist and filmmaker Jillian Mayer reflects on the meaning and cultural use of nude selfies on the web. In her project, 400 Nudes, she interrupts the common perception that female bodies are being objectified on this public platform. Instead, Mayer reveals how diverse women choose to share their intimate self-representations. Today's global access to mobile devices and the internet has created the opportunity for a new virtual rite of passage, the nude selfie. But while young women take charge of how they photograph their bodies, they often lose control when they click send to share them. For more than a year, Jillian Mayer sifted through thousands of nude self-portraits on Google, Tumblr, and revenge porn sites, and she photoshopped hundreds of the images she found, replacing the faces of the nude selfies with her own. I really wanted to find um, different types of women. I also wanted to find ones that particularly weren't necessarily ones that looked like they were mass-marketed. The reason I'm interested in the selfie as opposed to a nude portrait of a female was because inherently, if it is a selfie, it was directed and executed by the person in the photo. And then if it was accessible to me, it's because that person sent it to someone else. So it wasn't a personal photo that was to remain on their cell phone. It was one that was meant to be shared. Most of the time in my research, nude selfies were not meant or initially intended to be mass distributed. There's a certain age group reflected. You chose an age range. I chose anyone to me that looked over 18. You weren't looking on adult sites. You were looking on mainstream Tumblr, Google. I was going for public sites, especially revenge porn ones, because those are ones that are uploading pictures of females where they weren't authorized to recapture and reclaim these images of these girls. 
Scrolling through the images, I realize there's something really positive here. In their poses, these young women show what they love about their bodies. They control the male gaze when they snap the photos. I think it's great that people document themselves and so many of the women in this batch or the women that were most easy to find have really beautiful bodies and they're all really different. So that was exciting to see the women, I don't want to use the word objectify, but they definitely center themselves as the main event in the photo. So they were all taken with acknowledgement, yet after that is when the information kind of gets blurry. There's no shortage of nude selfies on the web. In fact, Jillian had over a million naked bodies to choose from. In this mass group of photos, it was really interesting to me because you can't help but feeling that some malice occurred. And I'm not saying in every photo because there are lots of people and websites for, for contributors to upload their own selfies. But I have a feeling that a lot of these were somehow leaked or uh, given away without authorization. In her search, one find was a nude selfie advice column. These are tips that are made to protect young people and particularly young girls in the information I was reading. And one of the top tips was don't include your face. But then I thought, how funny is that, that this post is giving these tips. And the first tip is to remove your identity because it's expecting that these pictures will come back in a way that you didn't intend. It just sent me off into thinking about what could be potential ways to control the information while still being exhibited. Jillian reflects on global concerns about information sharing and privacy. I guess the network of information and identity becomes something that I really tune into with this work. Also, by placing my face upon each image, in a way I universalize the online naked nude selfie. I guess what I'm really interested in is the disruption of information, even on to such a minute level as one's nude self-portrait. Is any one of these pictures actually you? Yes. There are a couple that are me, and then there are a couple that are me with um, distortions. So uh, like Photoshop manipulation of features. In fact, Photoshopping is one way that Jillian envisions safely sharing intimacy online. If everyone could disrupt photos, is that the future of the online naked nude? If I wanted to share a photo of myself with someone, would the best and safest way to go about it to be creating maybe 10 images and where the proportions are distorted or I've taken different body parts from different people, it becomes a a game of like authenticity and identity confusion. And I find that really interesting. If someone was looking up perhaps me online or my Google image results, and they find a naked nude, perhaps that could jeopardize me from something. And now there'd be a certain impression of me and it's kind of like a scandal, right? You have this photo online of your body. We all have a body. Yet there's a lot of shame that's wrapped up into having your naked photos online. My project is an experiment and it is dealing with very timely and very contemporary issues. It's a fluid project and 
the outcome of it is not 100% chartable or trackable. So I think that it's reflective of, of the internet in that, in that way, where I kind of release this project and once it's out of my hands, I have no control. We're now constantly dealing with issues and having to come to conclusions on where we stand with privacy and information sharing. This is Fresh Art International. I'm Kathy Bird. Today we introduce creatives working across the globe to engage in contemporary practices outside the gallery. On the streets, in private homes and community gardens, on rooftops and web platforms, these artists, curators, and filmmakers alter our perception of everyday patterns in our environments and our lives. We thank the Emily Hall Tremaine Foundation for supporting this episode. Our story is archived in Issue 9 of Exhibitions on the Cusp, the Foundation's web publication. You'll find Fresh Art International episodes anywhere you go for podcasts. It means a lot to know you're listening. Thanks to followers like you, we've been sharing stories about creativity since 2011. Go to freshartinternational.com and click on the red support button to give what you can. The John S. and James L. Knight Foundation will match your contribution. Stay tuned for more contemporary art talk.